This episode is brought to you by Canela Bistro and Wine Bar, serving Spanish plates and over 70 wines from Spain in the heart of San Francisco. Visit us socially at Canela SF and canelasf.com. You're listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind with Matt Schuster. We're getting inside the brilliant and delicious minds of remarkable culinary individuals. We're telling stories, cutting up, and breaking it down. Welcome back. I'm here with friend, actor, and improviser Eric Rogers. Hey, Matt. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for coming and and chatting again, Eric. Yeah, absolutely. So today we're talking with Antonia Lofaso. She is a TV personality, cookbook author, and executive chef, and owner, Black Market Liquor Bar, Scopa Italian Roots, and Dama in downtown Los Angeles. So Antonia is best known for her roles on Top Chef, Restaurant Startup, Cutthroat Kitchen, Iron Chef America, and Best Thing I Ever Ate. Really, she's known for... Top Chef, season four. So, Eric, what do you think of reality shows and cooking competitions? Interesting. I don't really go out of my way to watch those types of programs. but Why not? Um, you don't find them thrilling? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because I say that, and at the same time, at one point a few years ago, I had a housemate who was watching... And I'm blanking the name of the name of it. It was the one with Tim Gunn and the designers. Uh-huh, what uh-huh, that one's uh-huh. called. Make it work. Yeah, make it work. Make it work, work. work, designers. Yeah. And at first I just walked in and I saw this on the TV and I was like, why on earth are you watching this? And within five minutes I was completely hooked and then was going out of my way to seek it out. So why do you you think it grabs our attention? I think it's just like the human dynamics, the competition, like you're just really pulled into like just you want to see the drama, you want to see how it's going to end and who's going to get eliminated. Like it just... I don't know. It's some kind of psychological thing that just draws you into it. So you're not a chef. I am definitely not a chef. So what reality show competition, either real or fictitious, would you apply for? If I were going to be, wow, off the top of my head, I think I'm sort of a, like, not the big brother in the United States, more like one of the European ones, maybe Norway. <laughs> I don't what, what sets apart Norwegian big brother from American or British b- b- big brother? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's my familial roots or something. Maybe like the Dutch version. I, so what would be one of the competitions? Like, how would people be eliminated on Norwegian big brother? <laughs> crossing crossing fjords <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe kayaking or some such thing not that i would necessarily do super well in that competition but <laughs> some kind of smoked fish like oh yeah smoked maybe fish like a... tossing <laughs> <laughs> yeah like whoever drops the fish gets maybe like kicked off the cornhole but with smoked fish oh something there you like go that. okay yeah where you're... smoked fish cornhole, cornhole. okay there you go All right. Well, speaking of smoked fish cornhole, let's listen to Antonia's interview. By the way, there's a surprise in this interview. I found something out about her in in my research 
that is very interesting, and we talk about it during this episode. And, I, and, I, and I'm dying to tell you, but at the same time, I don't want to ruin the reveal. We definitely don't want to spoil that. Yeah, we don't want to spoil it. So here we go. If you want to find out more about Antonia, you can find her on social at Chef Antonia. You can also find her on the web at ChefAntonia.com. Let's go. Sounds good. I'm going to go grab some smoked fish. <laughs> Chef Antonia, thank you so much for joining me in your own restaurant, Scopa. It is, by the way, gorgeous. I love the brick and wood. Thank you. It is, it's so elegant. Yeah, we like to call it, sort of like old school New York, Italian meets California. I get that. And the light fixtures as well, they, they definitely make me think East Coast. So yeah, well, it. my business partners are from Staten Island. I'm from Long Island. So that's essentially what Scopa is. It's American Italian food. Uh-huh. So it's this idea that we are, you know, it's a tribute to American Italian food. So where a lot of Italian restaurants are regional Italian cooking, our region is Brooklyn <laughs> and Staten Island and Long Island. So I asked you a little bit earlier a couple of words to define restaurant culture, and you said consistency. Yes. So, so, so tell me a little bit about it. Consistency is probably the biggest compliment anyone can give a restaurateur or chef. So, I mean, it's great when we can think of incredible items for menus and that we can be very creative and that we can execute a dish once. And then from there, it takes your team to be consistent in your vision and what you've taught them to make the dish consistently the same way every single night, 365 days a year. You know, and when you're in the restaurant or when you're at another restaurant, when a cook changes or a sous chef isn't feeling well, that's consistency. Mm-hmm. And people frequent restaurants because of its consistency. Right. It's consistency in its service, with its managers, with its hospitality, and then with its ingredients and execution. And the plating as well, you think should look exactly the same every I think time? The plating, or? I mean, everything that we teach in the kitchen, and when uh-huh. I say we, I say myself and my team, very rarely do you hear me say I, because it takes myself sure. and the 300 employees I have to run you know, the restaurants and bars that we have in Los Angeles. So it takes what we do to be consistent, where here is the plate, this is the way it should be plated. Now is the egg bigger? Do we get in, do we go and measure the egg? No. You know, the petite basil is a little bit different. We had to pick a leave off and it's not three, it's two. Sure. But no, there's no creative freedom to plate things differently. That structure, I think, is so important. I've talked with other friends a lot about how we're responsible in this industry for training people in their first jobs. And one of my first jobs was at TGI Fridays when I was a teenager. Oh, and I still remember. Home of, of stability. Oh, yeah. I love places like TGF Fridays and Cheesecake Factory. Those and tests California. were hard. There were like over 100 drinks to memorize on the bar test at, at, at Fridays. And I still remember like, you know, the glasses that they come in. So my you know. one of my business partners, Pablo Moy, had his start at TGI Fridays. Mm-hmm. And he talks all the time about their standards and what that looks like because they're feeding hundreds of millions of people sure. across sure. the United States and actually in the world. So in order to have that standardization, I think is really, really impressive. So I know with me, like when I start to get down with all of the drudgery of business world, I just jump back into creative and it it just lifts my mind. So what's in your creative mind right now? Like, what are you playing with? So for me, it's always a balance because at the end of the day, a chef has to be a creator, but they also have to be an operator, Mm -hmm. right? So one does not go without the other. It's as simple as that. 
And I find myself sometimes too much in my operator mind or sometimes too much in my creative mind, you know? And I try to find balance in both because both are needed in this industry. I don't care what anybody else tells you. You will not be successful if it's only creative. You won't be successful if it's only operated. What I like to think about is travel. Mm -hmm. And not just travel as if I get on a plane or a bus or in a car, but we have one of, I mean, between books and the World Wide Web. Yeah, the I world's mean, small. I mean, I spend, I swear to you, any chance I get in a bathtub with my <laughs> iPhone where mm -hmm. I'm just combing through people's websites and areas and I'm just like best 15 restaurants in Spain or, you know, and just start looking at dishes or ingredients or food or I just Google, you know, whether it's just like vegetables or meat and I just start looking at things. Mm -hmm. And through that exploration, yes, a lot of it comes through travel. A lot of it comes through restaurants that I've eaten in. A lot of it pulls from my memory or a lot of time it's through conversations that I'm having with people that I love and adore, work with, family members, teenagers. I mean, I've had a ton of conversations with my own daughter about food that makes me go, oh my God, I want to do this. So I never really know where it's going to come from. It mm -hmm. comes from just living life and being open right. to conversations from people of all walks of life. That includes my father to my 19 year old daughter and listening and hearing what people are interested in eating or seeing, you know, different fruits and vegetables, or again, just exploring the world, you know, and you never really know where the dish that you love, that you put on the menu, that people are going to fall in love with, the idea comes from. And do some of the other cooks and chefs come to you here and say, hey, I'm excited about this. What do you think about this? They do. So a lot of sous chefs, not cooks, but a lot of sous chefs want to start designing their own dishes and mm -hmm. be part of that process. I don't allow for that process to start until the operation is locked down. So for me to teach a chef how to be creative or to have an opinion or to have a point of view, to me is almost doing them a disservice if they don't know how to keep food costs in line, right, if right. they don't know how to be a manager, if they don't know how to lead a team, if they can't expedite a night of service, right? Because they can have all the greatest ideas of in their lifetime, but if they actually can't put it into good use, meaning like teach a team of 17 people, which that is our service line of a, on a Saturday night at Scopa, to breed that into a dish because right. they're like, I'm not going to work for this guy or this girl, do you know, or they are falling on execution. They can't sear a piece of meat correctly, or then they can't cost out the dish and the dish ends up costing more than right. it is to right, sell right, it. Right, right, right. All of those things are really a disservice to them. Sure. I always think of the aspiring sushi chef who has to do rice for like two or three hundred years. years. Right. I like right. to tell this story all the time. When I first started cooking for Wolfgang Puck, I heated up soup for an entire year. <laughs> that was it. I heated up soup. I bet you got so good at heating I up soup. I am probably one of the best soup heaters, <laughs> heater uppers. I mean, cream <laughs> based, broth based. Yeah, they're, they're, you I know, can like... heat up any soup you ask me. <laughs> but it's really interesting because I put in that time and then, you know, the knowledge, everyone's like knowledge is power. So the knowledge that comes right. with all of this experience, right. right, then leads me into the position that I'm in today. That's what I tell people about getting older. I feel like the thing I like about getting older is I feel a little bit less stupid, you know, like not, not completely smart. Smart, but I feel just a little less stupid as the years go by. I would have to agree with yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. So there's so many parts and pieces into into this business, as you know. What's the part that just makes you want to like rip your hair out and run into the street and and just you know? 
You know, be the best part of all of my businesses are all of my team members. Mm -hmm. So people ask this question all the time of me. What is the piece of equipment that you can't live without? And I'm like, it's actually not a piece of equipment. I can't live without my staff. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the question was, what's the thing that once makes mm -hmm. me want to rip my hair out? <laughs> I, I like how you, 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 you gave a little sugar before because, you. Uh, well, because I can't yeah. live without right, them. Right, and right, they're right, the most they're some of the most incredible yeah. people that I've ever yeah. met in my life. Yeah. When it's Christmas or Thanksgiving or any holiday, Hanukkah, you know, New Year's, I actually feel more at home with all of the people that I have you know grown up with in this business mm -hmm. than sometimes I do with in my own home. Mm -hmm. You're managing personalities, you're managing people. It's and that's where that that's where the answer comes. I feel that a lot of times I become a therapist. Mm -hmm. So not only are we talking about food, but true leaders actually really spend a lot of time with their employees and find out what it is that they need, what makes them tick, what motivates them. Who taught you that? Because that that's a hard learned if you didn't get it somewhere from yes. someone else. So my mentor, there were a couple of them, but two specifically are Lee Hefter and Ari Rosenson, both of which come from Wolfgang Puck. Lee Hefter actually runs, he is the chef of Wolfgang Puck. Yes, Wolfgang is the face, but Lee Hefter mm -hmm. is the exact, mm -hmm. the, the actual, doer. The, mm -hmm. the doer. Mm -hmm. Ari is his, basically his right hand. So when I first started working for Spago, those were my two mentors. Extremely compassionate, loving, harsh, aggressive when needed, and just two of the biggest teachers I've ever had. Both really mentored in a way that they legitimately cared what happened to me or what was happening in my life as much as I wanted to share it. They legitimately knew that people had bad days and people needed love and nurturing and people wanted to be taught and people wanted to learn. And they just did that so effortlessly. They truly love the people that they work with. They truly love the people that are their purveyors. Um, they want to just keep good people around them. I mean, there was a saying that they use and now I use, I can teach someone how to cook. I can't teach someone how to be a good person. That is 100% true. So I hire people that have strong character. Mm -hmm. I hire people that are honest. I hire people that are hardworking. Anything else I can teach. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they just held that standard when, when I I was a kid growing up. I always like to say I was a kid growing up in the kitchen. And that's what I learned. That was my biggest takeaway. Obviously, I learned how to cook. Execution was their primary focus in all dishes, right? I wasn't focused on the inspiration behind the dish. I wasn't focused on how interesting the dish was. I was focused on how to cook the dish properly. Mm. And then my point of view came later and all that. But the leadership, the mentorship, the, you know, caring about the people that work for you and wanting to make them better people and not just better cooks or, and that goes down, you know, from dishwashers to valet to anyone I come into contact with. Is that harder to find in your opinion lately? No, I don't. I think good people are good people. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think that I don't think there's any less good people mm -hmm, in the world mm -hmm, today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just maybe a little bit different how you. I think we just hear you know, about more about the bad stuff on the news than mm -hmm. we hear about like all of the good things. I see a lot of 
really. But you don't have young cooks coming in and they're immediately kind of want to be in head chef position. I get a lot of young cooks that come in and immediately <laughs> want to be in head chef position. I had someone not too long ago tell me that they were too good to cut lemons. <laughs> I, I always thought it was really funny. Considering one of my chefs who's been working with me since the dawn of time, Naima Wilson, uh -huh. uh, when we just recently opened Dama, I mean, I'm sure any person who is listening to this who is an actual chef in a restaurant knows there are times your dishwashers leave right. and don't come back right. oh, yeah. <laughs> in the middle of service. And we were in the middle of our opening and all of our cooks were really well trained and they were awesome. They still are awesome. And my sous chef at the time, Andres, and my uh, chef de cuisine, Naima Wilson, jumped into the dish pit and that's washed great. dishes all night yeah. and, without and, even question. And, and that's why they're in that position. But yeah. th there is like a, a nice kind of calmness with washing dishes though, don't oh, you find? <laughs> I, I have to say afterwards, first off, the dish pit was like the best it's ever I was going to say looked. the most organized. Was, I walked yeah. back there and I was like, you guys are the most right. incredible yeah. people. And, and the most highly and, paid dishwasher you'll ever Yeah, right, well, so. and not just that, they, they had smiles on their face right, and right, they worked right. as a team and they were like, the dishes are clean. Right. That picture that night, what that said to the servers that watched them do it, right. to my management that watched them do it, to right. the line cooks that watched them do it, to the runners that watched them do it, meant that they knew that their job was everything right. in the right. restaurant. Right, right, right. It wasn't, I create dishes and look how cool my dish is. Right. It was, this is to the betterment of the business and the hospitality business. And the culture that that breeds, no, it's, it's it important. is priceless. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is yeah, yeah. priceless. Yeah. And those are the people that I want to work with. Not you know? to mention she was probably telling the servers or reminding them to stack their dishes properly. They were, she was telling them to stack the dishes properly to make sure that all of the ramekins were soaked and right. the, the knives were soaked with the... the Great, right, because she's not stupid. No, you know? and she was so, like, what an opportunity you know. <laughs> to like organize the dish fit, basically. I love that. Um, but love yeah, that. it was, you know, I just, it's interesting to me, there is, there is a slight culture of of um, young professionals coming out and expecting, I mean, I don't right. think this is in the hospitality business, I think this is across the board and everything. Sure. They come out and they are expecting things to happen very quickly. Mm -hmm. And the only advice that I ever give people is I'm 43 this year and I've been cooking for over 20 years. Slow and steady wins the race. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the other part to that is I would never wanna skip the middle. The middle is the training, the not knowing if it's going to work, you know, that sort of, the, the middle was the best part. Yeah, that whole know? fake it till you make it only goes so far. At some point, you actually have to learn what to do. You can't fake it anymore, you know? You can't fake it in this business. Yeah, I don't care yeah, what anybody says. Yeah. Fake it till you make it is like, I understand the concept and, right. I, and I sometimes use it right. in my own personal, <laughs> but I actually haven't faked any of my training. Right. Like right, you don't right, fake right, right, your right. training. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> right. You don't, it, yeah. you don't fake what you've actually accumulated in, in food knowledge. You yeah. know, that's, that's not a thing. So, so I've recently was thinking in my mind how confidence does not equal experience. I had a young kind of cook come in and, and, and I asked him if he could do something. He's like, oh yeah, no problem. And he said it so well, I really thought that he could do what I was asking sure. him to do. And then I realized that he actually couldn't. And, and, and it just is like, you know, that confidence will fool you. You that know, because it sounds hurt. nice. I know, right? Because it sounds nice. It's You're like, like, do you know how to use this giant <laughs> right, machinery and right, all right, of right, missing right, three right, fingers? Right, so right. sometimes it's like an unsafe statement. Right, right, right. It's actually okay to say, I don't know how to do that. If you show me, I'm a fast learner. I mean, I love, I appreciate that answer. Right. Actually, you know, chef, I don't know how to use that equipment, but I'm a really quick learner. If you yeah. show me once, I will get it. 
Yeah. That to me is that's called ingenuity. And that honesty, it just goes it goes such a long way. Yes. I mean, even down to we had a, a I say it all the time. People are like, Do you like do you know what this is? I was like, I don't know what that is. I'm right. sorry. Tell and me. it's okay for me to say I don't know every piece of food that has ever been created in this lifetime or every vegetable from here to the sun or you know, so you never stop being someone who learns. Well, and so. you also, and like what you're saying with learning, you you lose out when when you don't give somebody the opportunity to teach you. You lose out on learning what they've learned. Sure. You know, and and maybe you don't want to do that, and but that's also valuable too. Like, do you find that making mistakes is you know valuable, and you learn from them well? That is probably one of the best questions I've had all year. Most people who interview or ask questions or food write only want to talk about like the fluff and like the beauty mm -hmm. and you know on paper everything looks so great right now for me right it's like so successful and great team and doing all these things the levels of failure that has taken me to get here is something that most people don't often talk about mistakes are important mm -hmm. I'm learning that now it's very harsh reality with my 19 year old daughter mm. because you automatically want to shield people from mistakes, sure. help them not fall on their face. A lot of that is really important sometimes, you know, and I know that sounds strange, like why would you want someone to fail? For me, there's more education in failure than there is in success. Oh yeah. And I know all the things that I don't want to do. Mm -hmm. I know all the things that when I do a cookbook, when I open a restaurant, the people that I'm in business with, the staff that I want to hire, I know what the failure to that looks like mm -hmm. and because now I'm in the success of it. Mm -hmm. I know what it feels like to be in partnership with restaurateurs that don't feel right to me because I failed at it. So now I know what I am looking for. What's one big thing that sticks out in your mind that was a failure or a flop and really came back and taught you a lot? My very first restaurant closing. It's like losing a family member, you know. Oh, I, can, I almost yeah. stopped cooking. Yeah. I almost stopped cooking yeah. for a multitude of reasons. Not only the feeling of failure, mm -hmm. the public humiliation that came sure. with it. Because when a restaurant fails, no one looks at the whole of right. the investors and right. their pressure, you know, because it all falls, the weight of the restaurant success, you know, falls on the chef. It's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. And one of the largest things I learned is to speak up. And if something doesn't feel right to me and genuinely never sort of settles, you know, when people talk about your instincts, your gut instinct, it's actually a real tool. Mm. I know that no one can sort of quantify it or put it in a box, no, it, but it is a real tool. And one of the other biggest moments was the cover of my cookbook, mm -hmm. my very first cookbook. So I'm in the process of writing my second one now, but the very first one, it went with through a really large publisher. It was sold for a good amount of money. The content of it I still love and stand by. You know, it was called The Busy Mom's Cookbook, but mm -hmm. it was meant to be, I didn't want it to pigeonhole where it was just a book for busy moms. This could be for really any person who lived sort of this crazy life of work and your children or maybe not just children or you know what I mean and wanted to have a structure and it was really also a lot of storytelling on my part where I struggled as a parent who worked you know and with the sort of guilt of being away from a young mm. daughter mm -hmm. while I built my empire yeah, if right, you will right. and the cover of the book, I wanted it to be edgy and mm -hmm. fun and real. And I didn't want it to have a picture of this perfect looking mm -hmm. woman on the outside of it who was slender and had a pretty smile and a cool necklace. Right. And Not a spot on their apron and et cetera. And unfortunately, it's literally the cover of the book. <laughs> and <laughs> I went back and forth 
and spoke my mind. And I said on the cover of the book, I want it to be in my restaurant because I'm a working mom mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I want there to be a baby. My daughter was seven at the time, so she couldn't be the person. But I wanted like a baby sitting on the counter, mm -hmm. dredged in flour. That's Maybe funny. we would like have the baby not really holding a knife, mm -hmm. but like holding a knife. Me on my cell phone, stirring a pot of sauce with like a ripped shirt, mm -hmm. really showing right. an honest, true yeah. depiction of it's work. The imperfect <laughs> right. world that this really looks mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm, you know, and that mm -hmm. we're all in this together kind of mm -hmm. a thing. And I thought that really would have said more. It would have touched people more. But instead, I was obviously the deal that I had gave me zero ability mm -hmm. to have mm -hmm. final say on the cover of the book. And the cover of the book is an awful, awful mm. rendition of what could be someone's life in a fairy tale that doesn't exist. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Mm. But you learned. But I learned. <laughs> but you learned from I that. learned that the next book, I have full autonomy on Oof. the cover of the book. Oof. <laughs> I know that you do a lot in the community, and you'd mentioned before about you do a lot of fundraising for Beit Teshuvah. So yes. tell me a little bit about that and your connection to it. So Beit Teshuvah is a drug and rehab facility in Los Angeles that has been very near and dear to my heart. I have family and friends that have suffered from addiction and they have just been an incredible support. Mm. And in every capacity, when I first started working for charity, you know, if it was a, do you want to compete on the show for charity? Do you want to come and do this fundraiser for charity? We'll donate to your charity. I said at that point, I really need to think about who I want to donate this money to. Right. Cause it's endless. Cause it's endless. Right. And there's so many opportunities. Right. And and I do, I do things for the LA Food Bank and I do mm -hmm. things that obviously revolve around food as well throughout the year. But I also, the one that I find to be sort of the most beneficial to sort of my heart and my soul because I've seen what this kind of addiction does to family and to right. friends and watching people sort of get their lives back and people, you know, there is no... Well, and it's it, prevalent it's, in not only, it seems your family, but but, but in the industry, in industry a lot. Yes, our so. industry is, you know, overrun. So I really wanted to take a stand and really talk about and donate money and really make sure that that part of me was heard. Mm -hmm. And so I've raised a good amount of money for them. I do every year. I donate dinners, auctions, and um, any chance I get to compete on television for charity, the money goes to that charity. That's so, awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, you definitely have a good heart for that. So I had asked you a little bit earlier uh, in, in some of kind of my getting to know you questions to talk about a time of great loss. And I know that it is, you know, a huge subject, but tell me about it. We lost my daughter's father about seven years ago, 2011 mm. or eight years ago. Wow. And it was obviously probably one of the hardest things that I've ever Ever. Yeah, I can't imagine. There's no, there's actually no way to explain that to anybody. Mm. It's mm. as simple as that. Mm -hmm. You know, you have either dealt with the loss of a loved one mm -hmm. or you haven't. Right. And it's almost like, I, and I don't mean to laugh, but it's almost like the Bible, right? It was like before. <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> everything that happened before right. and then everything that happened after. You oh. know, it almost separates your life story into two parts. Right. That's how my daughter right. and I look at it. It mm. was like while he was here and then after. And how old was your daughter? 11. So, she was, so she was aware of, oh, of daddy. Yeah. 100%. It's not like she was like a year old or anything. No, like that, no, no, yeah. no, no, no. She yeah. was, it was a huge loss. I mean, mm, of course. Of course. You know, all the doctors explain that the way children's minds develop and, you know, there's there's so many 
all this like information on how to raise a child who's lost a parent mm -hmm. or what that looks like and it becomes very emotional and then it becomes very sort of analytical at the same time of the age bracket that a parent dies and what that does to a child's mm -hmm. like psyche. I just kind of threw it all out the window. Mm. <laughs> you know, there was no real roadmap. I there guess, was no, huh? road, I mean, yeah. a, there's no roadmap to raising children right. in general. Right. And you know, you hear all the time people say it and then you hear, you know, you see memes, you see Instagram where people talk about life is short and right. life changes in a moment. And right. we say these words, but we really don't actually know yeah. what that feels like. Yeah, you know? as we're rushing to the next thing. Kind as of we're thing. rushing yeah. to the next thing, yeah. which that day was me rushing actually to do an event for charity, actually mm. for children. And I was at one of the restaurants that we had just opened and I was putting things in my car, just like a normal day. Mm -hmm. My daughter was at school and it was a normal day and it's just a phone call that's like, and it's that quick. Mm. It's just a phone call that he's no longer here. Mm. And there's an entire situation where you kind of go through like, that, what are you talking about? I just spoke to him mm -hmm. 30 minutes ago mm -hmm. because literally that's how mm. close it was. And then just everything changes from there. Mm. It's as simple as that. And this is heavy D. Yes. So, which I didn't Most people know, don't know. And didn't know. And, and I saw in my research and I assume maybe you're a little younger than me. I don't know. I'm 42. I'm 42. So, oh, hey. Yeah. All right. So, so. <laughs> thanks for the compliment. Hey. So, that's like, yeah, like that, memories, age, memories yes. for me. I mean, yeah. you know, that was in living color. Yeah. That was a time period in, in, in my life. So, my daughter, I think, is just starting to realize. So, it's interesting because people say that to me all the time. Mm -hmm. I spend so much time with them that I don't see. Of course. I don't actually think about, I, and honestly, it's almost terrible that I don't always think about the impact that it had on sort of the world or, you know, the hip hop community mm -hmm, or music, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, and the outpour of like love and the outpour of support that's come for my daughter mm -hmm. during that was like incredible because he was an mm -hmm, incredible human mm -hmm. being. The other side to that, though, is that my daughter at 11 didn't really understand what that meant. Mm -hmm. Now that she's 19, she's slowly starting to understand mm. what that meant, you know, what his work on this planet was, you know, and I mean, his story is incredible. Mm -hmm. She just wrote this incredible piece at the school that she's at on, in her um, creative writing class. And, you know, his family were immigrants that came from Jamaica. Oh, wow. His mother and father left their children in Jamaica, brought them over one by one. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Legally, they stood there as a family, mm. he was three years old at the time, and raised their hands and became United States citizens. Mm. And they could probably have never anticipated they wanted to come to the United States for a better life, which is like, you know, the American story. Mm -hmm. And then their son ends up becoming, their youngest son, you know, ends up be basically becoming one of the largest leading hip hop stars, Crazy. Yeah. you know, in, in the country. And, 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 and yeah. how did you meet? So I worked in New York and I worked in a restaurant that he used to come into all the time mm -hmm. and we just started talking. He actually lived in Los Angeles at the time and I lived in New York. Mm -hmm. It was a relationship that started over the phone. It was that relationship that you, um, that everyone remembers that I, of course, you know, I don't have anymore because now I'm 43 and mm. I work all the time. But you know, when you fall asleep with someone on the phone, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, because yeah, you're yeah, just yeah, yeah, on the yeah. phone for four hours yeah. talking about nothing. Right. That's how we Was got. that on a landline? That was on a landline. That was, <laughs> so so that you, was would, you would on a landline, you would sleep yes. through that off the hook, yes, like yes, that was on a landline. Beeping. That's yeah. so funny. And then no one yeah. could get through. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think, had call waiting. I think I had call waiting. <laughs> <laughs> I was. 
short diversion. We have a server who we were talking, it was very young, we were talking the other day about the Cosby show. And this was, you know, pre Bill Cosby sure. craziness. She hadn't even heard of it. And it was That's just like, how are big things, like that, that, those are times when I was just like, oh, I just feel so old. So you met and then he, you were bi-coastal. And then- yeah, so I was bi-coastal, I was finishing culinary school, and then he lived here, and then I moved, I, I'm from, La- I mean, I'm from New York originally, but all my family's in Los Angeles, so mm-hmm. I moved back to Los Angeles. Got it, yeah. okay. So you were born on Long Island? I was born on Long Island, and born you, and raised. And then you came to the West, and, and then you went back to the East, oh my God, and you went back to the West. Actually, there was even more of that, wow. but yeah, so I mean, my, pa- my parents relocated a couple of times, but yes, back and forth to New York a couple of times. So, so, so I'm so, the true definition of bicoastal. And you're you're bilingual in East Coast West Coast. Yes, if that is a language correct. A, the, you there know, is an East Coast language. Yeah, it's. I it's, sound like a Valley girl. And and uh, no, I don't. Th- I don't pick up an accent. But you. <laughs> well, you, when you listen back to the tape, you'll hear it. Don't worry. <laughs> you. Um, but there's there's work ethic because I've done correct. some work on the East Coast, and it's very like you know head down do I your job, and then at the end of the night you go out and you let party. off the steam, correct. and you and you 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 get it together, you know. And, I I specifically sent my daughter to the East Coast for college and and paying out of state tuition because she doesn't have she has she has great work ethic but she needs the other language of the East Coast. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, because yeah, she's yeah, only yeah. she was born on the West Coast, raised on the West Coast, and I shipped her to the East Coast. Yeah. And yeah. I, and I was like, you're going to school on the East Coast and you will live there. Yeah. The global part of me loves the kindness that we have out here in California, but at some point there's are there are certain days when you find yourself saying like if you don't mind if it's okay are you from the east coast no but like so so here's the thing people from the east coast are kind people on the east coast are nice it's it's just it's just more more direct they say it more direct and then i'm gonna venture to say that people on the west coast might just be a little bit more sensitive (laughs) (laughs) i would i I would agree with that but it's like so you can't blame the east coast no 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 but i remember you know when i did some work over there that um i loved working there like the 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 relationship seemed a little bit stronger you don't lose all the time well the interesting thing is you know all the fringe stuff people say this all the time about the east coast and the west coast and they're like oh people on the east coast are so much colder i'm like it's interesting that you say that because there is more public transportation and the forcing of people to be in very small constrained like departments Mm -hmm. at all times Mm -hmm. and they handle a lot better than the people on the west coast so i you know i'm like if you've ever seen a couple people on a train for a long period of time on the west coast i'm going to say that the east coast can beat them out Mm. (laughs) you know Mm. what i mean because it's it's interesting they're forced to spend more time in these small confined spaces, you know what I mean? If I go and sit at a bar in New York, I'm more likely to strike up an interesting conversation with a group of people like I would in Europe than I would in probably California. Why do you honest. why do you think that is? Because California people use their cars and they're actually mm. used to being a lot more isolated, mm-hmm. I think, than the East Coasters. That makes a lot of sense. So can I play a game with you? Sure. Okay. Simple game. It's just called three things. Okay, this I'm highly a... competitive. So am I competing ah. against somebody? Is do I just win yourself. something? Is there money involved? You, 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 no, you win. So it's not really a game. It's a. If there's nothing to win, it's not a game. Can I diverge for a second? Were you, sure. were you sports? Were you? Uh, no. 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 Yeah. Like no, I, I you was, do like like weightlifting. Yes, I yes. I do sports solo, solo, now. Solo sports. Right. When I was yeah. in high school, I watched a lot of 90210. Right. I didn't. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't uh, play sports. Okay, so this is three things, and don't censor yourself. The first three things that come to your head, there's no right or wrong. It can be 
uh, based in reality or it, c it can just be a dream. It can be imaginary. Doesn't Copy. Matter. So three pet peeves in the kitchen. Disorganization, uncleanliness, and music. You like a silent kitchen? Correct. So, because some people really need the kitchen music. Do you find that that... No one should need kitchen music. <laughs> <laughs> you cook music at home. <laughs> I mean, right during on. prep, like when the right, guy, right. When people are here during prepping right, during right, the right. day and it's not right. service. Right. Yes. I but mean, not during service. But not during, yeah. And normally, as soon as one of the chefs walks into the kitchen, the music's off. Mm -hmm. So, three things you want to do right now in your life. Three things that I want to do right now in my life. I want to. I don't know. That's like so. That's such a. However you. However you want to. However you want to tackle it. I would like to finish my second book. I would like to sit on a beach for a week by myself with a tape over my mouth and the inability to use my cell phone, <laughs> and so silent and cell phone free. And the third one would be. Oh, I'm going to say this, and um, my business partner can hear me, but I want to actually adopt another child. Not another one. Not, I haven't adopted one yet, but I have one child, but I've thought about another. adoption. All right. Yeah. You know what? I'm, I'm glad to hear you say adoption. There's so many kids that need homes. Yeah. You know? Do you have an age range that... Uh, no, like I actually have been thinking about it for a while. One of our GMs at one of our other restaurants got me involved probably eight years ago called for Raise a Child, and we've donated money and time and dinners and things like that, and I've just spent a lot of time with families that have adopted, mm -hmm. my daughter's friends and, and whatnot. There's an age range of like 11 to 18, I think, or even 10 to 18, where they're children who are going to age out of the system and don't really have any direction and don't really have the means to go to college and that kind of stuff unless they're really self-motivating or they've come across great mentors but there's just too many kids and it, you know I have extra rooms in my house and the means to welcome you know or maybe just foster I don't know but older children mm -hmm. to really help them either get into community colleges or you know there's just different things that can happen to like younger kids I think if they're not given that opportunity once they age out of the system so that's just things that I've been thinking about for the last like eight years how would your daughter feel if you gave her room away <laughs> I think she'd be fine I don't think she's really coming, I don't think she's that's coming awesome. home uh -oh. no I mean I have another room besides her room so it just seems strange to have space in my house yeah. and the ability to do boy something. girl doesn't matter I, don't really matter. I have yeah. no preference in anything yeah. on other than it just being, I think it, it's funny cause I've been thinking about it a lot more lately because obviously like the movies have come out and you know, um, there's been a lot of conversation about it even more so, but over the last eight years I've been thinking about it and the more I think about it, I almost have had this weird conversation with myself where, where it's like, can I, can I have a very structured conversation with a potential foster child or adoption child at that age at like 16 and say, like if you're in it to really want to do something, like I'm in it to do that with you, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, you know, attempt to help someone at a very sort of, you know, I would never want to be an 18 year old ever again, mm. even with a solid family. Mm -hmm. It was a, it's a very hard time in any kid's no, life. Middle right? school, middle school is like the worst, but well, no, I think high know, school, I, I, high school was once I could drive and I, I grew up in Texas. So once I could drive, things got fine. Well, but before well, I that, think what it was happens tough. though at 18 kids graduate high school, right? And it's mm -hmm. this huge culmination of my life is about to start. And mm -hmm. there's all this pressure to what sure. that means. What am I, what, 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 what who am I, I going to be? What am I going to be? What am I going to do? Mm -hmm. How am I going to make money? And mm -hmm. I feel like those are just kids that have a great stability at home mm -hmm. can even think that way. Kids that are aging out of foster care 
are like, how am I just going to survive? Right. You know, and they don't even have the options of, you know, or I mean, how do they live? I mean, Mm. imagine living in California, what the rents are and things like that. What job is an 18 year old going to get? Anything they can, they can get. Right. And when you look at the statistics and you see that kids that end up on drugs or on the streets or, you know, in um, prostitution and Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. all of that. Oddly, while I was in cooking school, I worked at a short term 12 in California, a childcare facility in San Diego the times fit in well with my, my school. And I learned a lot from that job. I mean, yeah. we had the padded cells where we're like, we had to like, you know, prone the kids when they got, you know, into a state and yeah. it, it was intense. I mean, I think the statistic at that time were like 20% of the kids had contact with some family member, but most didn't. Yeah. So their parental structure was the system. Yeah. And a lot of times, and then at that facility and, and at all the facilities, when they hit 18, they, you know, it was like doors, doors Bye. unlocked by. Yeah. And a lot of them would end up, you know, kind of right back in some other of kind of institution. Institution, because that's, that's all they know. That's all they know. Correct. And it was, it was intense. I learned a lot from, I, you know, the, one of the things I learned from that job was there was this kid who just didn't like me at all from day one. And it really bothered me. And one of the other counselors was like, you remind him probably of somebody in his life that, you know, treated him a certain, you know, way that he didn't like, et cetera, et cetera, really doesn't have anything to do with you, you right. know, cause you're doing what you need to do with this kid. And I think that sometimes, you know, you have to realize in those situations that people, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about no, them. That's the majority of the world. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're, they're really not going after you all the time. It's no. just, you know, think problems that are, they're having in, in, in their life. That's awesome that, that you want to get into that situation now because it's not an easy, necessarily an easy situation no. to get into. No. And that's why I was joking. Cause I said, my business partner's going to hear me. He's like, with all the restaurants, <laughs> you're going to take on other things. You're going to be crazy. But, um, I mean, some of those kids, I remember we couldn't turn our backs on, I you mean, know, it's, they were and, great kids, but Hey, I mean, gotta keep two eyes on them. Yeah. I think that there's potential in everybody, you mm-hmm, know what I mean? And I mm-hmm. do think all of it's, trust me, I've heard a lot of stories, but I just think that, you know, it'd be easy to, truthfully, I'm going to throw this out there. I think mm-hmm. it'd be easier for me to deal with any adult child and their situation. And, you know, just based on things that I've had to go through, mm-hmm. you know, with my own daughter growing up and mm-hmm. loss and, and, mm-hmm. you know, in a very specific situation of like, you know, drug and alcohol abuse and loss. There's been a lot of very grown up elements that I've had mm. to deal with and you know throughout. did you have to grow up quickly I did and I, she did mm-hmm. you know and I think that there's elements to that that has put me I think in a unique space mm-hmm. to want to put in the time and the effort to work with kids that have not necessarily had unicorns and rainbows that, you know to me honestly easier than taking a baby if I yeah. had to change a diaper I don't know about that <laughs> <laughs> so last three things three things that scare you Mm, the health inspector. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know. It's I actually common... literally <clears throat> make that joke all the time. There's only one thing that scares me in life, and that is the health inspector. <laughs> all jokes aside, really, the health inspector. Um, or, or even worse, a, a, if it's a different health inspector every uh, time, you know? Because yeah, they, all, they all look for kind of different things. In the right, restaurant you know? business, the one thing that really scares me is the health inspector. Right. Two, being stagnant or boring. Right. And three, if my daughter somehow didn't find what she truly loved in life mm. those are the three things that would that scare good. me those are good yeah those are good things <laughs> those, are, those are understandable <laughs> things to be scared of 
Well, thank you so much, Antonia, for taking the time Absolutely. out of your extremely busy schedule yes, yes, to, yes. To, to do this. If you want to see more about Antonia, you can check out her socials at, at Chef Antonia, or you can visit her website, chefantonia.com. You can also look at our website, canelasf.com, and we'll have her links up on our podcast page. Thank you for listening, and thanks again for your time. Absolutely. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind. Find us on all things social at Culinary Mindcast and on the web, canelasf.com backslash podcast. Don't forget to rate us where you found us. <laughs>